As you just heard, we're in a series called Crucial Conversations, where we're looking at conversations Jesus had with all sorts of people to see what we can learn about him and ourselves through them. Today's conversation with Nicodemus, a well-respected Jewish teacher, gives us particular insight into how Jesus interacted with people who were not his followers, but were still curious about who he was, people who wanted to learn more. And I think there's a lot of people like that today, maybe even some of you. I know pe many people who would not identify as Christian, but who aren't anti-Jesus either. People who, even 2,000 years since he walked this earth, recognize the wisdom of his teaching and even the impact of his example. People like my old friend, we'll call her Sonia, who respects what Jesus did, but she wouldn't say he's essential in life. He's more like an add-on option if needed. But over the 30 years I've known her, she occasionally feels it's needed and reconsiders. People like Joe, an acquaintance of mine who was not raised in the church and is actually antagonistic against it, understandably given his situation, but who, given recent circumstances in his life, began revisiting that question. Might the church or Jesus actually have something to offer him in his time of need? What's unfortunate about this process I've observed is that sometimes there are misconceptions about God or about people who are curious about God that can hinder this exploratory process. Here are just a few. See if you think these are accurate. Misconception number one. No one is really curious about matters of faith anyway. Some people aren't. Some people are actually even hostile to matters of faith, and that's fine. But a recent study found that the majority of people in the United States would be open to attending church with a friend. And the number is even higher if, if for those when the friend attends with them. I don't have to convince you, and as we have just prayed, life is hard. It can be dark. The weight of it can be crushing at times. You live long enough in this world, and you will eventually start asking if this is all there is. People are indeed interested, often more than we are aware of. Misconception number two. If someone was interested, God doesn't want them to think too hard about anything. People should just have faith and believe and be done with it. But as we'll see today, that was not at all Jesus' perspective. Contrary to popular opinion, God has a mind, and he wants us to use ours, particularly when we're thinking about him. One more misconception. Sometimes people resist that curiosity because they think God's whole aim in life is to point out what we've done wrong. Some people have actually told me, I just started feeling good about myself. Why would I go to church? They're going to make me feel bad. As we'll see today, that's not God's heart at all. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3:16, comes from our passage today and it would say the exact opposite. In fact, all three of these misconceptions will be corrected as we look more closely at the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. The story is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. It's page 1617 in your pew Bible. The words will also be on the screen if you want to follow along. We're going to look at this conversation in three parts or scenes. Uh, roughly uh, following the beginning, middle, and end of the conversation. 
scene one, curious seeking. The conversation starts within this context, John 3, verses 1 to 2. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So here's what we know about Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees are the most earnest group of people at the time. Not only that, Nicodemus is one of the rulers of the Sanhedrin, a group of people who function essentially like the Supreme Court for the Jewish people. One of their roles was to examine and deal with anyone suspected of being a false prophet. Now, just prior to this incident, Jesus upsets the Sanhedrin with his words and his actions. From everything we learn about Nicodemus in the first sentence, he is an unlikely candidate to go seeking Jesus. But he does. And he does at night. He'd like to have this conversation with Jesus under cover of darkness. He doesn't really want to go public yet. He doesn't even want to go on record that he's having a conversation with Jesus. Jesus has been stirring up a lot of trouble among the Jewish people, talking all kinds of crazy about having a special relationship with God and knowing God personally. Frankly, everything in Nicodemus' background and training pushes him towards writing off Jesus, except that Jesus has done some pretty unusual things. It's early in his career still, but there's too much for Nick to sweep aside. Water into wine, outlandish claims, other miracles and teaching. Risking his reputation and his professional career, Nicodemus is driven out of curiosity to see if there really is more to this small-town prophet. He starts with a compliment. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Remember, in Judaism, your authority came from your schooling, who you trained under. Nicodemus recognizes Jesus comes from God, and he grants that Jesus has some special relationship with God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. What exactly is the question here? There isn't one, or at least not explicitly stated. This scene kind of reminds me of a high school boy trying to ask a girl out on a date by starting, so, nice weather, huh? There's obviously more behind Nicodemus' initial statement, or else he wouldn't have come in the dark for a little chat. Jesus, seeing right to the heart of Nicodemus, gets right down to business in verse 3. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, okay then. So we're doing this. If you want to live in God's kingdom, Nicodemus, Jesus says, you will need a new birth, a new life. The phrase born again can also mean born from above or born from God. Nicodemus doesn't understand. How can you be born when you're old? Surely you can't enter your mother's womb a second time. Now, in Nicodemus' defense, it's hard to understand why Jesus would be telling this ruler of the most serious party to be born again in order to be part of God's kingdom or God's family. In that day, Judaism was a lot about being born into the right family, Abraham's family. If you were from Abraham's line and lived according to its customs, you were in. You were already in God's family by birth and heritage. 
So let's be easy on poor old Nick. It's not that he isn't smart. It's just that it isn't his worldview. It would never have occurred to a Jewish person that they would need to convert to become a child of God. They were the people of God. But right at the outset, Jesus tells Nicodemus, God is starting a new family, one where ordinary or natural birth is no longer enough. Religious background and ethnicity are no longer a sufficient basis for knowing God. Jesus tries clarifying in verse 5, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In Nicodemus's Jewish circles, God's kingdom was understood as a material, political kingdom where one day a Messiah would swoop in and overthrow Rome's power over them. But Jesus corrects this misperception. God's kingdom is not primarily physical. It's a spiritual kingdom, and as such, it happens by God's spirit alone. And then he uses this illustration slash wordplay of wind. In their language, the words wind, breath, and spirit are all the same. Just as the wind is unpredictable and cannot be controlled by human effort, so too is God's spirit. Like a spring breeze on a warm day or a breeze on a day of 62 degrees in March in Minneapolis, praise Jesus, God's spirit blows whenever and wherever he chooses. We cannot regulate it. It is mysterious. And for someone like Nicodemus, who has spent his entire career on, on making huge stacks of paper and sorting them into nice little piles, that open window and the strong breeze coming in is pretty disruptive. His categories of who is in were all neat and tidied up. And now with Jesus on the scene, this offer is thrown wide open to anyone and everyone, not just those with the right ethnicity, not just those with the religious background. His interest is piqued, but he's still not sure. Verse 9, how can this be? And then Jesus proceeds to tell him. Before we hear the rest of what Jesus tells him, I want us to pause. Because there's something really beautiful being revealed here about who God is and who we can be. Did you notice how Jesus responds to this highly educated religious leader? Sensing Nicodemus' interest, he immediately engages him. Yes, what Jesus says is challenging. It's different from what Nicodemus thought before. But it is also honoring to him. Jesus doesn't berate him and say, why is this so hard for you to understand? Or why do you have to ask so many questions? Why can't you just have faith? He does quip, you're Israel's teacher and you don't know. But that's more to point out how religious background isn't what's needed here. Jesus sees Nicodemus' curiosity and his questions and he seeks to address them. He takes the individual seriously He's in no hurry to have this wrapped up by morning. In fact, the conversation ends without Nicodemus being converted, or at least explicitly. 
This is Nick's last line in the whole convo. There's a lesson here for all of us. Seekers are safe with Jesus. We can bring our curiosity, our uncertainty, our this is all new to me and I'm not sure what to do with it, and we will be met with thoughtful dialogue, genuine interest and listening and patience. I know sometimes the church gets a reputation for being people of faith as if our brains get checked at the door when we come. That's not at all what Jesus was about. Jesus had a brain and he's not afraid of yours. He wants us to use our brains to think about these things. It is our deep desire at City Church that you always experience us as a place where genuine inquiry is not only permitted, but celebrated. We hope you always find here in Sunday services, in growth groups, certainly at Alpha, a place where you can ask questions and where you are met with honor, listening, and patience. If you are a nighttime seeker, you can come quietly, privately to Jesus with your intrigue and your questions, and he will honor you. A couple of years ago uh, at Alpha, we were talking about a verse in the Bible that says Jesus stands at the door of our heart and knocks and wants to come in. And one guest, a very sharp, perceptive, honest, actually a beautiful picture of genuine, respectful inquiry responded to me, I'm not sure if I'm ready for Jesus to come into my house. I don't, I don't know that I want that yet. And knowing the church baggage she had, that was a fair statement. So I said, okay, he doesn't have to come into the house. How about you just do coffee? Just do coffee with Jesus, right? Like if you're starting to date someone, you're not going to maybe go out on a first date with dinner. It's kind of expensive. There's no easy way out. You got to wait a while, right? Like coffee, you can have it. You can leave when you need to. I knew she liked to walk the lake, so I'm like, just take Jesus for a walk. Go on a walk with him, talk with him. You can always walk away. <laughs> she immersed herself in all of the firsthand accounts of Jesus. She read each biography of his life. Jesus is a gentleman. He will not force his way into your home or your heart or your life. You are safe with him. Take the time you need. Ask the questions you need. Just stay immersed on the most important thing, which is hearing who he is and keeping that conversation going. Because once we start engaging in conversation with Jesus, we will eventually be confronted with the reality of who he is. That's what happened to Nicodemus. Scene two, bold confrontation with Jesus. Eventually, Jesus turns the conversation to himself. You need a radical change. You need a new life, Nicodemus, and there's only one way to get it. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven or ascended heaven except the one who came down from heaven, descended, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, we'll get to that, I know it sounds weird, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. There is one link between God's good world heaven and ours earth. That link or ladder is the cross. In order to experience the life we want, we must go the only path that has been forged for us. And it is Jesus being lifted up on the cross. That's
Son of Man lifted up is another word play on both Jesus dying on the cross and then ascending back to heaven after his resurrection, taking his rightful place on the throne. Again, it may be a strange analogy to us, but it was not for Nicodemus. Jesus cites a key story from Jewish history from Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9, where the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were dying from poisonous snakes until God, through Moses, provided a way to be saved. A bronze snake Moses lifted up and all the people who looked at it would live. And the point is, just as looking at the bronze snake was necessary in order to live, so too is looking at the cross necessary in order to live. Those who believe in this will live, will have eternal life, Jesus says. And then this beloved verse, the gospel in a nutshell, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Nicodemus sees something different in Jesus. He sees unusual signs or miracles. He admits God must be with Jesus. But here's the thing. It isn't just that God is with Jesus. It's that Jesus is God with us. That's the key. Jesus, the unique Son of the Father in heaven, is so closely tied to God, so related to God, is in fact God himself in human flesh, that when he dies on that cross, God is not punishing some innocent party to satisfy some cosmic consequence. When Jesus dies on that cross, it is God giving himself to overcome sin and death once and for all, so that death does not get the last word so that sin and evil do not get the last word. And anyone in here who is used to the sucking sound of Lily's machine can say amen to that. We are especially grateful for that this week. Eternal life is the word John uses. Eternal in two ways. In duration, yes. It will not end, but also in quality. Unending life isn't a good thing unless it's a good life, right? Only God is eternal, so the life he offers is good. It is not tainted by sin or suffering or every speck of gunk, physical, emotional, relational. This is an invitation into the life God himself enjoys. Peace, joy, love. Take that forever. Now we're talking. But it is not just a good life later, after we die. Though we are so thankful for that. It is life now. Might have. Present tense. One commentator translates this phrase, deep and lasting life. Who doesn't want life? Who doesn't want deep? Who doesn't want to live rightly and deeply? However you understand that. And the crazy thing is, it's ours for the taking, if we simply believe. It's not proper grammar in English, but it's the phrase used here in Greek, and it might help us understand it better if we translated this phrase, whoever believes into him. Believing sounds like some cognitive assent. Yes, I comprehend those truths and accept them as true. 
Believing into someone is more than that. It's relational. It requires a response. It's betting our life on it. It's choosing to put our trust in him, to trust him with our lives. And while that does indeed involve every facet of our being, that's a really low bar in terms of requirements, is it not? A breathtakingly low bar, one writer says, utterly uncomplicated. Yes, there is indeed mystery of our faith, but it is not in this way of the intellectual sort. The mystery is one of grace. How can God make such life accessible to all? The door's been thrown wide open now. The wind of the Spirit is blowing. We can no more stop it than we can stop the wind. We're going to see this reinforced next week when we look at Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Taken together, John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, show everyone gets in on this. Men, women, rich, poor, those from the religious elite, those with very questionable moral character, the urban, the rural, the really good, the really messed up. Everyone can get in on this because God so loved the world. There's a worldwideness to God's love. It's for all people. There is not a person alive whom God does not love. And that includes you. There is not a person alive for whom God did not willingly give up his life for. And that includes you. This is one of the most persistent misconceptions about God I'd love to see clarified with the church's help. God did not come to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Contrary to what you may think or what you have been taught, God help us from the church, God is not out to judge you. God is out to save you. He loves you. He made you. He knows best how to live. He doesn't want to see you get hurt. He wants to give his life to you, life now, meaning, hope, purpose, joy, and life after our final breath. Won't you put your trust in him? Won't you believe into him? Won't you say, God, I believe you are the only pathway to life, and I choose now to put my hope and trust in you? That's the question, Nicodemus, and by extension, we are left with. And that's the third scene, the decision point. How will we respond to the truth we learn about Jesus? Before this conversation ends, Jesus offers one final challenge. Because you see, there is a problem. God loves the world, people. But people love darkness. We are deeply flawed. Jesus warned us we need to be born again, not switching out one little part. We need a total renewal of our whole nature. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Darkness is great for hiding. 
If you're doing something you don't feel good about, you want to stay under cover of darkness. Darkness enables, reinforces, feeds my habits that are not good for me, that are not what God would want for me. We often prefer the darkness because light is too revealing. But at some point, light starts to sound like a good thing. When it is so dark and you've lost your way, light helps us find the path home. When we see how empty and unsatisfying darkness can be, we're willing to risk coming to the light. But that can take some time. But God is ever patient. The door is always open. We can always come back to the light just as Nicodemus sought to. Nicodemus coming at night is coming to Jesus in the darkness to begin coming out of the darkness. Will we? It's interesting, we aren't told what happens to Nicodemus. He's only mentioned two other times in the New Testament. One is John 7, 48 to 51, where ironically, Jesus is talking about the Spirit again and some common people are starting to believe. And the Jewish rulers get really angry about this. They say, none of us religious leaders believe this rubbish. It's just the common people. And Nicodemus, <clears throat> quietly and cautiously, diverts their attention away, thereby protecting Jesus. He doesn't come right out and say or own up to being a follower, but he does make sure they go easy on Jesus. And you have to wonder what that's about. The other reference is after Jesus dies on the cross. His disciples have fled or denied him, but John 19.39 reports that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the text says, who had come to see Jesus, get permission from the Jewish rulers to take Jesus' body down from the cross and give him a proper burial. I imagine that was a huge risk. I like to picture Nicodemus looking up at that cross, thinking back to Jesus' comment, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Maybe that's when it happened for him. I don't know. But here's what I do know from this crucial conversation. If you are at all curious or interested in learning more about Jesus, come to him. Bring him your honest questions. You will be met with respect and patience. You may be confronted with a truth about Jesus that breaks your categories for who God is. But it's only because God loves you. He wants you to enter into this deep and lasting life he offers both now and forevermore. Yes, it will mean change. Trusting in Jesus will be a shift from darkness to light. It will be a whole new birth. And that is indeed what we are promised, new life, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, God, we are so thankful for your life that you offer freely to us. Thank you that because of your love, we can have life both now 
quality, good, deep purpose, meaning, joy, community, love. Yes, with all the thorns and thistles, yes, still. But you with us in it and life to come after we die. What a great hope. Would you clear away our misperceptions? Would you help us to see you as you are, not as the church has made you always to be? That we would know your love and your life and could spill that over onto others. Oh, Spirit, blow your wind as you will, as you would. We pray in Jesus' name and always for the greater fame of his name that he may be lifted up, and we are so thankful that he will.